Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. My co-host, Bob Zerl. With me, as always, is professional film critic, Sean Patrick, and cousin Jeff. Visit us at IHateCritics.net, Everyone'sACriticPodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle is CriticsPod. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Alexa, all your podcatchers. Uh, leave us a review. We'll read your review on the air. It might take two months for us to get to it, but we do have one from October 13th. Uh you may need to let us know when our review has been written. Uh, I don't have an automated thing telling me, but I do have one from Jeremy or Jez. Uh, the handle, uh, the title is Telling It Like It Is. Really enjoy hearing you two talk about movies new and old. I appreciate that you're willing to call out the low effort slot being churned out by studios and not pull your punches when it seems like a movie was just released for the sake of content. The rundown of 30... 30-year anniversary movies gives a good sense of what it was like back before the streaming services killed the industry. Keep doing what you're doing. So thank you, thank Jeremy or Jez. Uh, Get in touch, and I'll send you a copy of Alienoid. Yep. And That's just Sigourney Weaver running around really annoyed. <laughs> Aren't you glad I'm on the show? <laughs> Oh, it's Jeff's last show. Oh. <laughs> it's always my last show. I'm always going to say something. It could be worse. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Uh, anyway, if you leave a review, we'll read it on strange. the air. Just a, just a brief, quick aside. Do you think it's strange that ever since we added a gay guy to the show, we've stopped talking about Kevin Bacon's dick? <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about it. It's just not very impressive. It hasn't come up. just hasn't usually flick charts what made us talk about it i don't think we've had a kevin bacon movie on it since (laughs) just joined the show Uh, yeah when he when he whipped it out in the guardians of the galaxy holiday special i was just like (laughs) god can you ever not show your dick i forgot that even came out i feel like there's a joke i don't know about and i feel lost (laughs) (laughs) uh what else is there? Patreon.com slash critics pod is the best way to help support the podcast. And then I can get our merch over at tpublic.com if you search critics pod or go to I hate critics.net and click on the T public link. We also stream live on YouTube Tuesdays, Mondays, Tuesdays, whenever we record, Sundays sometimes. Uh, there will be a link on our social media when that goes live. All right. Let's get to the show oh yeah before we get to the show sean where can they get your reviews it's at uh on uh, my on my archive blog it's uh sean at the movies.blogspot.com for the movies that i've done the more than two thousand reviews i've done in the past uh, 20 plus years plus uh, vocal.media where i've got a profile and you can find my more recent reviews more than 1200 of them including 300 reviews this year jesus and then jeff where can they get your artwork uh, you can go to my website. All my links are there. JeffLasseter.com. It's I posted it several times on the page, but I can do it again. Just let Please. me know. Yeah, and it is uh, both links are in the show notes to the podcast. All right. Let's jump right into the, mo- the highest grossing movie of the week. Nelly and Nadine. <laughs> 
Uh, Nelly and Dady, I just really wanted to throw a brief spotlight on this, this this incredible documentary. I just got a chance to see it last week. It opened kind of very quietly over the weekend, so I didn't really get a chance to tell people about it. But uh, Nelly and Nadine is one of the most incredible stories ever told. A director by the name of Magnus Gerton was going through footage of people who had survived concentration camps and identifying the people in the footage uh, through just remarkable detective work. And he came across two women who at first didn't seem to be connected, but then he found out they were, uh, Nellie and Nadine. Uh, Nellie was a, a, a opera singer in Brussels. Nadine was a uh, journalist working in France who was born in, in uh, I believe, Japan. Uh, and somehow, just through extraordinary chance, they both ended up at Ravensbrück. They were both working for the resistance. Each had been working to save people's lives. Nellie specifically had saved hundreds of people's lives, getting them out of Brussels and into safety before she was betrayed by a friend and sent to Ravensbrook. Then Nadine, who was working as a journalist for the, res- for the, re- for the resistance, uh, she got betrayed as well and sent to Ravensbrook. And they met and they fell in love. And then they were separated at the end of the war. And it would seem at that point that this would have ended right there. But somehow they managed to find each other again uh, when Nellie went back to Brussels and Nadine went back to France. And they reconnected through letters. And eventually they they got together and they moved to Venezuela and lived a 20-year life together where they found this this LGBTQ community of people who had escaped World War II and were living in Venezuela of all places. And they built this life for a good 20 years and all of it went into a box, essentially, later on in life and went up into somebody's attic and disappeared until this documentary was made. And Magnus Curtin brought it all back with the help of uh, uh, Nellie's great granddaughter. I, I'm not even doing the story justice. It's even more incredible than what I'm telling you. Um, I just really want people to see this movie. That's pretty cool. Where did they even get the idea to do this? Was it something they stumbled across or did, this, did Magnus know about it? Or He stumbled across it because, like I said, he was working on a project already where he was identifying people from footage of World War II after the camps had been uh, liberated. So a lot of people took video cameras and were filming people who were, who were released from the camps. And he was working to identify them and you know, return, you know, show the footage to family members or whatnot and put together a documentary that way. And then he just happened to, to find Nellie and Nadine and figure out their connection uh, through just simple detective work. Uh, after he heard from somebody that, that there was a connection between Nellie and Nadine, he set about trying to understand what that connection was. And it led him to Nellie's family and the entire story that they'd boxed up uh, for so many years. So Nellie's daughter wasn't exactly happy about her mom's life and so she kind of put her mom's life like into a box and put it away for many years would it work as a feature film or would you rather keep it as a documentary it would be an incredible story it would be absolutely incredible in fact i it would be very easy to cast too i bet you can already do it just by looking at them standard (laughs) oh yeah all right speaking of incredible stories avatar the way of water avatar the way of water from director james cameron and featuring the voices of uh, zoe saldana sam worthington stephen lang uh some actors do appear but 
mean, we're really just stuck with the blue people for much of the movie. Uh, of course, the sequel to Avatar. This time, the uh, last time they got rid of the sky people, as they called them, and now the sky people have returned. And this time, instead of looking for unobtainium, they're going after the entire planet of Pandora to turn it into New Earth because we've destroyed the Earth because apparently... I don't know. Wally is a prophecy. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's that's the premise here. The sky people have returned, and they specifically tar- targeted Jake Sully. They want to kill Jake Sully. They think he's the biggest threat to uh, sky people taking over Pandora. Uh, so he decides to protect the Navi by running away and joining the Water People. I can't remember what the Water People are called. They've got their own name. Whatever. I don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. And that's the thing is that. I just can't be bothered with Avatar. Like, I just can't be bothered with this movie where James Cameron's obsession with just getting rid of actors, this idea that he's just going to eliminate actors from what he does. If he could get by, if he could figure out a way to get computers to talk, he would get rid of Zoe Saldana, Sam Worthington, Sigourney Weaver, all of them. They'd be out the door if he could get computers to talk. Honestly, that's the level of, of bizarre commitment he has to technology at this point. And and you can tell that by the way that the that the uh, dialogue is by the by the way the movie is scripted because he doesn't care what these characters are saying at all. Uh, and throughout this movie, you, there you could run a bro counter in the corner because these characters, the young the sons of the of Jake and Neytiri, bro over and over again. They just bro, use the word bro. bro. At one point, he says shit, bro. And I'm like, really? This is how you've decided to script your your super intelligent, beautiful aliens. Shit, bro. Like, come on, man. I mean, just the level, the middle section of the movie is entirely the most boring trope imaginable. You've got the fish out of water, except this time they're actually in water. <laughs> what a, uh, not even an intentional gag on his bro. part happens to be. Oh, God. There's at one point, like, even as the movie got good in the third hour, and it does get good in the third hour. I was still cringing so hard over every line of dialogue. Our family is our fortress. Fuck you. Shut up. Stop talking. Oh, my God. This movie is vapid. It's insipid when it comes to dialogue. It's impressive on every other level in terms of the technology involved, in terms of the, you know, the, the, the technology involved. (laughs) That's really all I can say. Some of the action is really, really good. Uh, But again, there are no human characters, and I just don't care about these blue alien people. Now, that said, if you enjoyed this, if you found Avatar to be uh, to your liking, to your if it's your Star Wars, if some people have said, that's fine. You know, Star Wars had really dumb dialogue, too. (laughs) So I get it. But it had human characters that brought charm to that dumb dialogue. So I prefer it myself. If you prefer Avatar... That's fine. Like what you like, whatever. I just, I can't get behind this. This is just not for me. I didn't see it, Jeff. I'm assuming you did. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, First, it looks gorgeous. The level of animation in this movie is fucking amazing. I mean, it's literally like, but that being said, that's what I concentrated on every little tick, every little, like, like the beads of sweat on uh, Kate Winslet's face at one point, I was just staring and I was like, okay, she's moving, but they're not moving. They're not, they should, you know, like, 
If it was actual sweat, it would be runny. It was just sitting there. It was like, that's the level of detail that they got into, but it was so distracting that I couldn't concentrate on what they were saying. But then I realized about halfway through the movie, I didn't really have to concentrate on it because all they're doing is they're telling the exact same story from the last movie, only wetter. I mean, it's the, you know, oh, here's how you bond with this particular animal. Oh, it's just like the last movie. Here's how you bond with the underwater tree, just like the last movie. And it was literally beat for beat for beat. You know, Stephen Lang is going to come back and they're going to fight. And, you know, it's it's it was just a retread. A character dies and ends up getting sucked into the tree, just like Sigourney Weaver (laughs) dies in the first film, gets sucked into the tree. Like it happens exactly the same way. Like it. Well, I remember when water story is the same. Well, back when Josh was on the show, I think it was Rambo two because Cameron wrote that, Uh, and we started looking at every movie he ever made outside of Titanic, and the skeleton of the story is the same in every movie he's ever made, and it was the fish out of water story, right? Every one of them. Oh my god! Well, to the point where when when one of the characters dies and they put him in the sea anemones that look like lava just like the terminator you know it's like <laughs> they just get I gradually was, better looking <laughs> yeah james cameron is a great guy i think he really really wants to push the tr- technology to whatever end you know so that we're doing certain things or whatever i i admire him as far as like sea exploration and i get where this movie comes from from that mm-hmm. but there is absolutely nothing different than the first one except they're not in a forest they're underwater and i there are just literally sequences that you could have cut 45 minutes out of this movie and it would have been pretty good you know oh you know oh we we bond with the animals here just like we do in the forest it's great okay that's a good 20 minutes out of the movie just bonding with the animals um there's one scene where they show jake and atiri how to bond you know they bond with those sea creatures that are on the poster and okay great so you assume that everybody else will have been taught except no kate winslet's daughter has to teach jake's son and it's like we just literally saw this 20 minutes ago Mm-hmm. It's just re- repetitive and redundant and gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the thing, another thing that bugged me, like the the bullies. He's got bullies in this movie. Why are there bullies in this movie? Like, what is the point? Storyteller. <laughs> exactly. Introducing teenage bullies into this story is so needless. It's so boring. It's so like every other fucking movie that has teenagers in it has to have bullies. Even the one with blue fucking aliens has to have fucking bullies. And it's like, why did, why are you wasting our time with this? Jesus, you've made a beautiful looking movie. Let just get past all the stupid bullshit. Why? I mean, your script is already garbage. Just cut half of it and make a better movie. When somebody said, I don't know where it was. I just remember hearing it that, they were hoping that aliens would invade the earth so that humanity would come together and have a common enemy and, you know, put up, put aside their differences, but no, we got to have bullies in space because, you know, they have a common enemy, but 
oh, well, I don't like you because, you know, you're just a little different than I. It's just, come on, we get it. James Cameron's subtlety is every everything is a nail to him when it comes to subtlety it's just the time the hammer just happens to be wet it's <laughs> exactly there's there's a scene where like the, they they arrive on the water people's land and they're asking to stay and then they let them stay and then they're going to learn how to swim for the first time it's like these guys i mean why don't they know how to swim already like they just fucking got here they're fucking they're fucking <laughs> Land people, they've never fucking swam before. Like, why would you expect them to already know this? Why are we waiting? Stop wasting my time. Can't they have just learned to swim already? Why not in the past 15 years they haven't learned to swim? Yeah. <laughs> Get yeah, I, all out of the way, and you you don't have to waste an hour of this fucking movie on on this on this bullshit that we've seen in every other movie about teenagers. And that's that's the thing, too, is like. Um, when they were having their initial fight with the sky people, when they first came back, I was like, I, I was like, okay, one of his sons is going to die. One of his sons is going to die because they were both like jumping into battle and making stupid decisions. And how many scenes did we have of him telling his sons to stay where they're supposed to be? So they don't get hurt. Yeah. And every single goddamn time he says it, the next scene is them going into the ocean past the reef or going up to this uh, whale kind of creature that the one son has befriended. And it's just constant. Don't do this. And then they do it. It reminded me of like Jaws 2 when the kids weren't supposed to go into the lagoon yeah. and they all went in the lagoon and took the little, the little brother. And it was like, how many do it one time, have mm -hmm. consequences, and then you don't do it again. It's just, come on. But of course, the, the repetitiveness of it and the predictable trope as well. The good brother, who's the always the one who's in, who's doing the right thing. And then you've got the the other brother, Goofus and Gallant, the, the classic trope. Uh, which one do you think is going to end up dead, Bob? Just guess which one of them ends up getting killed. Goofus. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard to predict. I don't want to do spoilers, but it's not hard to predict which one of these guys is going to die. And You've which one seen has to learn the valuable lesson the from the other one dying? Come on, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. Uh, but again, uh, technically accomplished. Extraordinarily technically accomplished. Can Congratulations, you James. You wasted three hours of my time, but you've done something incredible, incredibly visually beautiful. Can you think of a director who's a great writer but a terrible like, technical filmmaker? Kevin Smith. Okay, so what if Kevin Smith and James Cameron got together? <laughs> Kevin Smith writes the story. I, I think there'd be even more dick jokes. <laughs> like just more yeah, dick jokes. But you but Cameron has no liberties. He has to follow the script. All he has to do is just make it look great. <laughs> I mean, imagine Red State with what Cameron would do. Uh this is a kind of movie that makes me wish Carrie Fisher was still alive to do dialogue. Yeah, because she always punched up. She put. She was a script doctor that not a lot of people knew about, like outside of Hollywood, and she would have watched this and like, why the fuck are they saying bro every five seconds? Oh, we didn't I, I just that. It, this needed like, you need like a Last of the Mohicans approach to this if this was what you're gonna do. I mean, you're already making them Native Americans anyway. 
Like, just go the full fucking nine yards and and make them the noble whatever. Because honestly, this type of this this hemming and hawing over that and pre- trying to pretend that's not what this is is really shitty. On top of it, but uh, to then to then have them talk like this, to have them talk like you know, high school football players with suffering from head injuries, like it's just it's just needlessly stupid. I mean, is he just essentially the? best version of Roland Emmerich or Michael Bay? Pretty much. Pretty or, much. Or am I being is that not fair? Well, but here's the thing about them. They at least have humor in their scripts and they don't take everything so seriously. Hate him, or, hate him as much as I do, but Randy Quaid in Independence Day was one of the highlights of that movie. You know, mm. he was good comic relief. This movie has no real comic relief. Everything's played so straight mm. and you know, there's a couple of jokes here and there, but they don't land because they're it's so technical. Everything is so technical in this movie, and there's no real talk, love for it. I haven't, no, I haven't even talked about the young white boy in the room. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Jake Sully and his family have adopted a, a little boy who is left behind because I guess babies can't be put into transports back to Earth or whatever nonsense they came up with. And this character could be taken out of this movie without changing a damn thing. Like he hasn't zero effect on the story. I don't know why they decided to include this character. He, I he know adds why. nothing. He he's he's just. Uh, I, I I'm gonna. And he's the I'm one he really it. abuses the word bro as well. Yeah, I'm gonna spoil it. He's the son of Stephen Lang's character from the first one, and it's his conflict that keeps Stephen Lang's character alive because we can't have a movie that's called Avatar without Stephen Lang. He's outlived his usefulness twice now. Yeah. <laughs> what I find fascinating some is... Kind of like, they're going to do like some uh, Darth Vader you know, face turn in number three. No, oh, he's just going to... Yeah, I, I was surprised that didn't happen at the end of this one. Where he's like, oh, you're my son and you saved me. And I, you know, I'm going to renounce my materialistic ways and join the Navi. No, no, he's going to he die. Just, he's got to die nobly because that's the trope. That's the easiest trope yep. to write is him dying to save everybody. In the third film, because that's what you do in third movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, early on, Sean was saying that Cameron is trying to get rid of actors by making movies like this. Yet he was willing to give Matt Damon 10% of sales of this movie, of all the Avatar movies. You even heard that? No. What Matt Damon I... turned down, was offered the role, and he said he can't do it. He has a Bourne movie. And then Cameron goes, I'll give you 10% of the gross. And he goes, I can't. I'm tied to Bourne Ultimatum. <laughs> and he's like, well, we don't need you. And it's like, and clearly they don't, but he basically turned down $270 million. <laughs> Plus whatever this does in the next one. And but he was going to be Jake Sully. Yeah. Which, I mean, still, I mean, he still would have gotten rid of him. I mean, he'd right. still just be a voice. He would just basically throw money away. <laughs> yeah. Total, total waste of money. <laughs> Nothing against Matt Damon, but I mean, his voice. recently. Cameron recently admitted that that was true. <laughs> it wasn't just Matt Damon telling a story. That's so weird. What a dumb idea. <laughs> but that's... Again, I love Matt Damon. I'm just saying... Well, no, exactly. But it's something Cameron would do, though. Yeah. Like, Why would you make a movie that has to make $2 billion to break even? <laughs> like, 
I mean, egotism, right? And who let him do that? Anyway, but it, but it's working apparently. Four hundred million dollars worldwide. Yeah, we still got one. I think that's because Sigourney Weaver's back. <laughs> okay, but you got one point six so, billion to go. Then you got to make a profit after that. I'm sure they will, but it's like that's a lot. Mm-hmm. All right. What else do we got? Empire of Light. Empire of Light stars Olivia Coleman as a woman who works at a cinema in England. She's uh, recovering from a mental health breakdown fairly recently. She's also sleeping with her married boss, played by Colin Firth. And that's when this young man, played by Michael Ward, is introduced. He's hired to work at the cinema. She immediately takes uh, a liking to him, but he's much younger than her. And obviously, she doesn't think that there's much of a chance for her. But he somehow takes an interest in her. And they develop this very unlikely romance until obviously various different obstacles arise to keep them apart. There are three different movies going on here. There's this May December romance going on. You've got Olivia Coleman having this very, you know, mental health based story. You've got this other story about racism that's going on because we've got race riots that are happening and are affecting Michael Ward's character. He's being uh, menaced and threatened by skinheads on a pretty regular basis. There's even a fourth movie, really, because there's actually a, the cinema is being uh, ready to host the uh, 1981 Best Picture winner uh, that year. Uh, was uh, Chariots of Fire uh, for a grand premiere. So they've got that going on in the background. There's so many stories going on here, and n- not one of them really takes hold very well. I like the romance stuff between Michael Ward and Olivia Coleman. I thought that was kind of lovely but the movie keeps bogging it down with everything else. And then just Sam Mendes just makes some weird choices. Like near the end, they, they, they make a point of telling you early on that Olivia Ward's character never stops to watch the movies. And so finally she does that, you know, she finally is going to decide to watch a movie, but instead of watching it with Michael Ward, where it might've meant something, she watches it with Toby Jones, <laughs> who, who to this point has, you know, they've worked together for a number of years but they've never really interacted in the movie. Like they kind of been just vaguely friendly. So she has this very special moment watching uh, being there, the uh, wonderful uh, Peter Sellers film. And then, uh, and and she has this wonderful moment. She shares it with him instead of Michael Ward's character. And I'm just going, why, why do they bother then to have Michael Ward's character learn how to become the, the uh, camera person, whatever they call that. (laughs) He learns how to, yeah, the projectionist. He learns how to become the projectionist uh, to, and, and run movies, which Toby Jones's character never does, he says. And so they make a point of that, like he's bringing him in. And then you would think that th- they would share this lovely moment where she actually watches a movie and he projects it for her and they have a, a moment. But no, no, that doesn't happen. She has this moment, this very special moment with a character she barely has connected with throughout the movie. The whole Cullen Firth thing goes absolutely nowhere. Uh Really, it's a it's a sloppy mess. And aside from again, it's a great looking poster, and some of the movie equally looks just as good. But again, Mendez makes such weird choices. Like there's another aspect of this where Michael Ward and Olivia Coleman uh, spend their time together at work on their breaks in this other part of the cinema that's under, undeveloped. There, it, it was like it had burned down or been broken apart in a storm or something. 
I thought, and there's, they make a point of pointing out that she's taking dance lessons, and there's a big dance hall in there, too. So I thought, okay, they're going to rehab that theater. They're going to create a brand new third cinema in here and rebuild the dance floor, and that's going to be a whole big arc as well. No, never comes up. <laughs> Why'd you introduce it if, if it doesn't fucking matter? Mendez just keeps doing that, and it just, it, it, just, uh, it just bogs down the entire movie and just makes it incredibly unsatisfying. Isn't Mendez normally known for just kind of being, I don't know if safe's the right word, but just kind of good enough, but he's never quite amazing? <laughs> I don't know. He's come close. I think Revolutionary Road it comes close. I, obviously, American Beauty doesn't. But <laughs> yeah, it does. He just cast the wrong person. American Beauty was a wonderful movie without, but... In hindsight, you can't right. really watch it. But you put Nicolas Cage in there. <laughs> I think Mendes tries to do too much. I think he can't resist just doing everything in a movie. Every idea he has, like Skyfall, is every action movie idea he ever had. Like, you know, just everything he does. 1917, which I guess would be the, the best movie he's done, uh, is still a lot of things happening. And, and him having to, I want to shoot this all in one take, like, you know, just unnecessary to the story. I just want to do that, do it that way. And it's the most successful thing I think he's done. But yeah, I think he's just, he's too, he's maybe too ambitious and, and too scattershot. Yeah. All right. Call me Miss Cleo. Call Call me, me now. Call me Miss Cleo. Call me now. Next documentary about uh, the phone line lady from the 1990s. Uh, she pretended to be a fake psychic. Uh, she pretended to be a psychic. She was fake. Uh, she was an, actually an actress and Los actress and writer in Los Angeles who uh, moved to Florida and adopted the character of Miss Cleo that she'd created uh, for the stage in California. Uh, she adapted it to this call in line for these two. Uh, scam artists who started a psychic line and uh, she perfected the character on the air and became the face of the brand for about two three years they made millions of dollars really didn't pay her much but you know she she was still the face of the brand then they got sued because they were it was a massive scam and they had actually she never answered the phone never once actually all of her phone calls were staged for the show that she for the commercials uh, in reality, the people answering the phones were part-time people getting paid five bucks an hour to talk to people who were desperately mentally ill and had or had hardcore mental issues that they were trying to get a psychic to fix for them. Probably a little bit underqualified for this. Um, and so they scammed a lot of people out of a lot of money. Uh, Miss Cleo, in the end, escaped blame and went on to live her life in Florida, still pretending to be a psychic and still pretending to be Jamaican. And that's where this movie gets into a very cringeworthy area because the movie spends a lot of time trying to rehab her into this wonderful story about this woman who becomes an LGBTQ icon and you know, takes care of this whole community of LGBTQ people and what a wonderful human being she is. Then you start to look around at her circle of friends and you realize it's a group of white liberals who are feeding the fantasies of, of a woman who is pretending to be a Jamaican psychic. And suddenly you realize these people have created for themselves a real life magical Negro. And it just, it just gets, it's so cringe. 
It's so cringe. And the thing about it is, is that the directors aren't doing this on purpose. They seem to buy into this just as much as her circle of friends. And that just makes it even more cringe. Yeah, I thought it was every literally every part of this thing was incredibly sad on every level and the cringe just feeds into that because you know this apparently she was abandoned when she was a little girl and raised by people that might may have been her family may not have been her family may have been jamaican may not have been jamaican just you know she was kind of shunted around and not paid much attention to so she was able to throughout the you know throughout her teens and 20s become you know kind of latch onto this persona that she created on stage and i guess turned it into a legend so to speak i mean everybody knows who miss cleo is if you grew up at all after you know if you were born anytime before 1990 you know who she was uh, the fact that they went after her because she was the face of it, even though she didn't, you know, she didn't make any money from it or anything like that. You know, that's, that's kind of the way it goes. And it's like, let's, let's blame Miss Cleo. Let's, let's make the joke. Oh, I bet she didn't see this coming over and over and over in the media. Um, You know, and then let's, when she goes and she's living in Florida and she gets this group of people and the only, this is a this is truth, and I have seen this said several times in social media. If you want to have a place to to hang your liberal guilt on, who better than a disgraced TV psychic who happens to be black? Mm. And that's what I got a lot from a lot of the people that she hung out with in Florida, because every time they cut to a black person talking about her. They were just calling her on her shit, basically. <laughs> you know, all the people she did theater with were like, uh, no, she's not a psychic. She's, you know, she's this girl that we did theater with, and this was her 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 shtick. Mm-hmm. And that was like it's such an indictment of that kind of, you know, like white liberal guilt that it made me cringe a lot. I wish it were an indictment, though. I mean, it is for us. I think we're seeing it. I don't think the directors see it. I think they're legitimately trying to to rehab her, her uh, as a as a person. They're trying to present her as this, you know, fallen hero, uh, and that she's not blameless. And she knew what she was doing. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. She knew she knew she was a fake psychic. She knew that every dollar that was made off of her persona was going to a couple of con artists. She was fully aware of that. She participated in it and she benefited from it. Uh, that's that's pure fact. And this idea that, you, that they're going to treat her like she's this uh, wonderfully redeemed icon is just total bullshit. Was yeah. Was maybe this came after her, but. I seem to remember a disclaimer of for entertainment purposes only. Was that the psychics after Miss Cleo, or did they include that with her? I think they, they did it did, with they her. Include, they did include it with her, I believe, eventually. I don't think it was right away. I think it was shortly after she started the commercials that they did, but they did do it, but that didn't get her off the hook. Because sure. most people don't read that. They don't. They just think, you know, they see the 
you know, the black lady in the turban who speaks funny and let's, oh, I bet she knows things because that's the way the media has conditioned morons. Yeah, that's, again, there's a much better documentary to be made about that mindset, about, uh, you know, white people viewing black people in that in that manner as this exotic uh, creature that <laughs> can see the future. Like, there's there's a much better documentary in that idea than anything in this movie. Yeah, I am triggered by the word cringe because I have a 15-year-old daughter and I, all of her friends <laughs> use that word all the time and it's... Well, it's the Sean is basically a 10-year-old girl. It's the only word I can think of to describe how I felt watching this. No, it's, it's relevant. I'm just, it's hard. Anyway, let's move on to the one movie I did watch this weekend, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Trues. Uh, directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, the director of The Revenant and Birdman. Uh, this is a, a trip, that is for sure. Uh, this is a movie about a man, about a journalist you know, from, from Mexico who is extraordinarily well-known. He suffered a pretty significant trauma in the death of his uh, recent baby. Uh, he still has an older son. Uh, he's uh, going through his life in a very strange fashion with lots of Lots of big, grand dream sequences kind of informing his real-life story about what he's trying to do, which is you know, protect Mexican people and Mexican culture and celebrate it while also trying to defend himself as a journalist from various different attacks and uh, still dealing with this the amount of uh, incredible trauma and depression that has afflicted him throughout his life, uh, from the death of his father to the death of this baby. The way Inaritu decides to to portray this is very uh, kind of shocking and exciting and strange and weird and classically uh, Inaritu sort of way. Uh, the, the opening scenes with the birth of the baby and the baby's death are incredibly jarring and shocking and kind of great, honestly, because it's just so bold. Uh, but uh, I, the movie does linger a little bit too long, and that uh, really does kind of start to drag i think towards the end of the movie until we finally do get to the end and then the end kind of drags a little bit i i think this is a pretty incredible movie in many ways i think there are sequences in this movie that are some of the best sequences of the year because inaritu is just that good he has a lengthy conversation with his late father that i thought was just incredible the uh, the birth death sequence is remarkable um and this dance sequence that you can see in the trailer that that takes on a whole new level via a David Bowie song that is just extraordinary. But again, the movie just lingers just a little bit too much. Did you get a chance to see it, Jeff? I did not. I did not. This was a terrible weekend for me to see movies, <laughs> especially yeah. with three and a half hours of fucking Avatar. Yeah. Avatar, and, sorry. And then this is pushing through, or what's this, two and a half? Yeah, this uh, one's pretty good too. I I don't know. I love him as a director. I love this movie. At the same time, it was the only thing I watched. Uh, I I haven't had this experience in a while. I mean, I've had it a lot this year, but it's been a few weeks since I've gotten to see something fresh and original. Uh, and I didn't mind the lingering. I, I thought it was. I enjoyed it. Uh, I just enjoyed being in the movie and the in this dream sequences and the just kind of what he's 
going through. I don't know. I just found the whole thing neat. Uh, what I hate most about it is people comparing it to the Tree of Life. It's nothing like Tree of Life. It's way better than Tree of Life. Uh, it shouldn't be mentioned in the same sentence at all. Uh, but I think, you know, to me, this is right up there with, you know, one of the top two or three movies of the year. Obviously, it's nowhere near number one because number one is so good. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. But uh, had that movie not come out this year, this might be my favorite movie of the year. I liked it that much. Uh, so uh, it's on Netflix. It's, I don't know, the trailer alone with the I Am the Walrus with the Beatles is pretty fucking amazing, too. So I, yeah. if you don't want to watch the movie, at least watch that because that's pretty cool. <laughs> I, there are like I said, I think there's a couple scenes in here that are among the best of the year. I just thought the movie lingered <laughs> a, little, a little much. It could be it could be a little tighter for my taste, but that's that's really a minor criticism. I do. I also recommend it. I also think people should see it, uh, especially if you're somebody who loves you to read to and you love movies that are n- nothing like you know the everyday mainstream film. Uh, this is absolutely for you. Then if you hate if you hate mainstream movies, see this one. This is not bad. <laughs> And I could see, just depending on the week I watched this, you know, my opinion changing in terms of the the lingering, uh, mm-hmm. just needing something fresh, needing a break from reality. This is kind of the perfect time, you know. So I I feel like the, it just hit me at the right moment. So, uh, but yeah, Netflix, it's worth watching. Uh, uh, watch it, watch it fifty times before you watch Avatar. <laughs> Wait. Sight and Sound says it's a breathtaking experience. Didn't they also say that Gene What's Her Face was the number one movie of all time? Well, the people that voted for on that. Uh, the people that rigged the vote. Yeah. <laughs> I still hate that movie. Sorry. I mean, it's got to be Vertigo if you're talking about just kind of everybody's opinion together. To me, that makes the most sense. I don't know. Anyway, we can move on. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio also on Netflix. Yes, and why we need so many Pinocchio movies, I have no idea. This is the this is the third Pinocchio movie this year, I think. We skipped the Disney one with Tom Hanks, especially after the reviews came out about that, which uh, apparently is one of the worst movies ever made. If you listen to most critics talk about it, but uh, this one is far more accomplished at the very least. Uh, But this is the same Pinocchio story as always. Pinocchio is cut from a piece of wood and comes to life and he's living with his dad, Geppetto. And he goes on a journey, learns, learns a lesson, reunites with Geppetto there's a lot of stuff that, st- that that there's a few changes. Like there's a few things that Del Toro does to make it a little bit darker and a little bit uh, deeper. But again, I, I, the Pinocchio story doesn't do anything for me, even in this telling, uh, I think it's technically accomplished as technically accomplished as avatar. Honestly, it's that good looking. It is, a, it's an incredible film to look at, but it's Pinocchio. And I mean, I've <laughs> suffered Pinocchio far too many times to, to try and care about Pinocchio again. I mean, if Del Toro made like an R-rated Pan's Labyrinth version of Pinocchio, I'd be more interested in watching it. <laughs> uh, I He's one of my favorite directors, but at the same time, he just, it's like, why does he make some of the movies he makes? You know, if he would just do The Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth and stuff like that, 
And and nothing against Hellboy and uh, some of the other movies he's made. The the robot fighting movie. It's like <laughs> you can only make that so good. <laughs> so yeah. Why are you making this movie? Uh, and there's, he, there's a I, scene there, yeah. I feel like with him, if he had done this as more of like kind of a body horror movie, mm-hmm. I, I think that would have been, been you know. An R-rated body horror Pinocchio, like the movie Pin from the '80s, you know, I, which I have have not seen in forty years or whatever. But I've never. Uh, heard of it. It's yeah. It's we'll have to see if we can get a hold of it and watch it sometime. It's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> if he had done, the, you know, if he had done like the body horror R-rated movie about, you know, the puppet that comes to life. And, you know, I just, I watched probably an hour of this total, but I was, I, I'm not going to lie. I, before you came on, Sean, I was telling Bob, I started to watch it and then I got, uh, like kind of sucked into reels of people getting hit with things and falling down on Instagram. And then the next thing I know, I was like, oh, it's yeah. Oh, Pinocchio still on. Okay. And it's it's very, uh, like it looks like a Guillermo del Toro film, in a lot of ways, and it's very dense. And I feel like if I, you know, if I had an affinity for this story, I would probably be sucked in and would love to have seen it in the theater. But if this was a second Pinocchio movie ever made, you know, I'd probably be yeah. all over it. But I just don't care. <laughs> There's a lot of Pinocchio <laughs> movies, man. Uh, whatever you do, like avoid the Roberto Benini human Pinocchio oh. movie. That, that is some serious. That is some serious fuckery. Um, <laughs> and then apparently, like I said, I've not watched it. I've heard that the Tom Hanks Pinocchio movie on Disney is just an absolute disaster. <laughs> Somebody said the Polar Express meets Pinocchio, mm. which makes me really want to avoid it. Mm-hmm. All right. Our undisputed classic is 1974's Black Christmas. Is that the right year? 1974. Yep. Uh, produced and directed by Bob Clark and uh, starring a handful of relatively uh, recognizable actors. Uh, this is a story set at Christmas with uh, a killer who is stalking uh, young women on a college campus living in a, you know, they're in, in their own. Uh, dorm or guess whatever it is you want to call sorority it a house, house. sorority house uh and it basically created an entire subgenre from that it's the progenitor of every you know, sorority murder movie to come after it uh and that way you cannot take that from this movie you can't uh, blame this movie for that it's too, that this movie is that good that it created a genre you can't uh denigrate it for everything else trying to copy it um one of the this movie is incredible uh, overall, it's always been incredible. Uh, and part of that is just the clever ways in which Bob Clark comes up with to present this killer. The, the POB shots in this movie are are just innovative. And I'm imagining at the time they were just brilliant. But even today, I thought, just watching it again, just those POV shots are so clever and so scary. And I mean, you can see, again, that's another piece of the DNA of this movie that exists in so many other movies to such a lesser extent. 
So the only movie before this that had really done that was Peeping Tom from 1960 yeah. or 61. Yeah. Uh, but this movie really, this actually, this movie is responsible for Halloween in that Bob Clark made this movie. Um, spoiler alert. You can fast forward a few minutes if you don't want to hear this, but at the end, the killer gets away. You don't know who the killer is. And, you know, it's, so John Carpenter met Bob Clark and said, Oh, I'm a really big fan of your movie, black Christmas. And, you know, have you ever thought about making a sequel? And Bob Clark, according to John Carpenter said, I'm thinking about like the next year, the killer comes back to campus and there's new girls and uh, it's, but instead of Christmas, it's set at Halloween. <laughs> and then you go and watch Halloween and apparently Bob Clark abandoned that idea. He went on to, you know, do other classics like Baby Geniuses. Um, well, Bob Clark literally created three genres. <laughs> he created the TNA comedy. He created the slasher films. And then he created the Christmas, you know, kind of the whatever Christmas story was. Yeah. 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 He, Bob Clark, I wish he was still alive today. He was killed in a car crash with his son several years ago. Um, he must have some amazing stories because he just, he worked with everybody at each level of his career. And he was kind of like Wes Craven that, you know, he like, except he got to do other kinds of movies besides horror and music of the heart. Um, (laughs) you know, it's, this is my favorite movie of all time. Um, and I, I don't count star Wars because, that's you can't talk about one and not talk about the whole thing. This is a self-contained story that is just, it's brilliantly told. It's slow, methodical. It's telling a story much in the way that silent night, deadly night is telling a story from the beginning. And you have to pick up all the clues as you go throughout this movie tells you the story of the killer through the obscene phone calls. And you know, it's, Agnes is the the Billy's little sister and he apparently kills her and you know the parents were trying to find out and he just goes crazy and somehow escapes and starts sneaks into the sorority house and starts picking off the co-eds one by one in pretty brilliant ways uh, the one of my all-time favorite directorial choices is when Billy is killing Margot Kidder's character with a giant glass unicorn mm. that has like a six inch horn and it cuts between him killing her and a children's choir who is Christmas caroling on their front steps. And it's just, it's just, I've always like when people say, you know, what are your favorite sequences? That is probably one of my top five, favorite sequences from a horror movie or almost any movie. It's just, he just had a way of staging things that are really unique. And I think a lot of people were influenced by when you listen to Sean's review of Halloween and how he doesn't like it. And it's hard to argue with that because black Christmas got everything right. That Halloween gets wrong in Sean's review in my opinion I, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not but it, I just it is so far superior to all the movies that came after it in the slasher genre uh, 
it really is just it, it's insane to see how you know it, it's the top and then as movies come out after it they just water it down a little bit more every time and it's pretty cool to go back and see this and how fresh of an idea it was at the time I think well, Carpenter how- got the got the wrong ideas from from Black like he took the wrong parts of it and tried to make when he went to make Halloween like the there are other parts where they're so much better. Well, in this movie, evil is in the background, and it's right. you know there's a there's just a shape, like in Halloween, but there's no backstory to the shape in this movie that's explicitly told. Well, you know, exactly. But. You know, where in Halloween, it's, it's start, that's how it starts out. You know who the killer is right away, and he never, it's not the shape, it's Michael Myers. This character doesn't also doesn't have like, uh, you know, like sprightly comedy to him, like uh, hiding behind a bush. He, he, here I am. And then, he, he, no, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, I can't get over that. I can't get over Michael Myers just like running through bushes with his stupid mask. <laughs> so well, dumb. And, and Billy in this movie, you're meant to think that it's Kier Delay's uh, character, Peta, uh, not Peta from the Hunger Games, but his, his name is Peter. But I can't not call him Peta because of the way Olivia Hussey says it. <laughs> um, you know, and you're meant to think because you know she goes to him and says, "I want to get an abortion because I'm pregnant and I don't want to be with you anymore." That he snaps and is the killer, and you think that pretty much all the way up to the end. For me, I watched it the other night with my niece who's 16 and she's always, you know, oh, I'll watch it someday. And so she came over to my place and we watched it and she had, you know, she said, oh, it wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be, but it was really spooky. And she goes, and she's actually for a 16 year old, she's very liberal <laughs> thinking. She's like, wait, when was this made? And I said, 1974. She goes, oh, so abortion was legal. <laughs> and I said, yeah. She goes, oh, good for her. I wouldn't want that creep. I wouldn't want that creeps baby. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it, it was 1974 right after 1972 when abortion was made legal, you know, and it's, it's really timely. It's not like it, it still resonates to this day because it's all, it's not, Oh, well I had, you know, I'd go to the gallery and go to the mall and, all that kind of stuff. It's very, very, a very small story told methodically and slowly so that you absorb it all. And skillfully. Like, he doesn't get enough credit yeah. for how skillful he is. Like, that, that sequence you talked about before with the, the cuts between, you know, Margot Kidder's death and the, and the choir, that, that is exceptional editing. That is an exceptional set piece. And, uh, but then again, take every aspect of this movie and you can find the DNA from this movie and everything that came after it. It's so crazy. I think it gets, I think this movie gets ghettoized by just being, you know, a Christmas horror movie. Like people think, you know, people see black Christmas and they just assume, well, it's a Christmas horror movie. I have to watch it at Christmas. And this is a movie that's good enough and it deserves a better reputation than just being seen at Christmas. Well, I think Halloween is what ruins its reputation because everybody gives Halloween that credit. John Carpenter gets all the credit Bob Clark should be getting. Well, uh, I, I think I think you know, to make the comparison, I think Halloween is the country music to this movie's like rock and roll, like <laughs> that very easily digestible version of this. I'm glad you're well, putting rock and roll that high up. I'm all I'm all with you. 
<laughs> the reason the reason that this movie holds up too is the humor. It alleviates the creepiness and the dread with some really funny shit. Margot Kidder's comment, which <laughs> I will no it could Claire, who's the first, who's the pic, the girl in the picture, uh, she says, "Could that be one person?" No, Claire, that's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call. I still, to this day, cackle sometimes when I when I listen to her. She's just, she's the drunk one. She's the bisexual one. She's, you know, she's really wounded inside. There's a there the beginning of the movie when uh, you're seeing from the killer's POV. She's talking to her mom on the phone, and her mom is, you know, she thinks she's going to go spend Christmas with her mom, and instead her mom is shacking up with some guy, and. Gets her a uh, room at Mount Holly at the uh, ski lodge. Mm -hmm. And she has, you know, she, you can tell her lines are funny, you know, like, well, you know, mother, uh, you're a real gold plated whore. You know that mother and you're laughing, but then you're like, she's saying that from a place of real hurt Mm -hmm. and she's a wounded character. And that comes through, even though she's like funny and, you know, kind of a little bit irreverent, you see that come out. And she has that whole arc before she's killed. And yeah. everybody in this movie has their arc, with the exception of Andrea Martin's Phil, who has some of the better lines in the movie and is there for a little bit of comic relief, but not the way Andrea Martin, you know, not, she's not being Andrea Martin. Mm-hmm. So Margot Kidder really pops. Like, she, she's just so charismatic right from the first moment to the point where she she seems to really pull focus almost as the main star of the movie which makes her death scene even more you know feel more hurt more tragic you know because you because you love this character and it's the this kind is of her character. best performance yeah absolutely oh, sure. unquestionable absolutely uh it it's it's a you feel bad when she goes like <laughs> you feel genuinely yeah. bad when she goes. well and i don't even yeah, feel Mrs. like Mac. oh go ahead no, I was just saying, Mrs. Mack, she's Marion Waldman is equally funny and smart and <laughs> just a little touch with her. Just a little touch with her where she she she's got the booze in the in the Bible, then she's got the booze in the toilet as well as she's brushing her teeth with it. Like that's just such a great character touch. That's just smart. That's just smart character building. And when she's she puts on half her lipstick. And then she's yelling at the cat and she never puts the other half of the lipstick on. I'm just like, Oh my God, this woman, I'm sorry, Bob, go ahead. <laughs> well, no, it was just, I don't, I think the first time I saw it was with the first time you were on the podcast. Cause I think we've talked about this movie four or five times. Uh, oh, we talked about it when I lived in New York. So it was at least 10 years ago. Yeah, it was a while, but that was the first time I saw it. I don't feel like my opinions influenced by you at all. Uh, Cause you know, just watching it for the first time, it was such a fresh, movie it's not campy in the way like some movies are it just it reminds me of whenever we talk about this movie like that scene in school of rock where jack black has all the bands and the flow chart on the chalkboard like you could do a whole bonus podcast on slasher films and this would be the one in the center you know where everything comes out of yeah uh and it would be a fascinating fun conversation and uh it really is the best. I mean, I like Texas Chance Massacre better, but I don't think it's a slash movie. I think that's off on its own. They try to bring it into that genre later on uh, with part two and Leatherface and all that stuff. But 
this is the one that it all cometh from and it's it just really is neat to see the source material not watered down because like i was saying earlier every time it's been done since you know carpenter added you get to see michael myers more so it takes a little bit away from it and they just by the time you get to jason even more is gone plus everything in between uh now you're relying on the camp and the failure of being genuine but not good that but somehow it makes it fun that make that makes those movies work this one is the one that's totally pure genuine and just tight i mean it really does hold up even now i think anybody could watch this and see something original that they're not seeing anymore i think i've held held back and truly like loving this movie because of all the knockoffs because i was kind of annoyed by everything that came from it (laughs) like this movie as wonderful as this movie is it spawned some horrifically terrible films in its wake that I, I did, admittedly I probably held against, but especially the remakes. There's been what two remakes in just the past well, twenty. One was not even relevant to this. Movie. Unwatchable. Yeah. <laughs> so can we let, let's can we talk about those two? Sure. Go ahead. Uh, the 2006 remake. I saw it in the theater on Christmas Day, I think, or the day after Christmas, and because I revere the original so much that was very very off-putting for me the first time i saw it i was mad what they did because they just they gave you billy and they gave you agnes and you know they told the backstory and through flashbacks and i was just mad because what made this movie so special was the fact that you never found out who the killer was you never knew explicitly who this guy was and what he had done you had to pick it up from context clues and you know in the 2006 one it's oh billy used to live in this house and uh you know he ate his mother's skin as christmas cookies and he his mother raped him and they had a baby and that was agnes and the mother killed the his father and it was just like what the fuck come on i just want i want to see like spooky but it all took place in one evening and i i was given it on DVD about five years after it was actually when I, I just moved to New York. So it was like 2009, 2010. And one of my friends was like, Oh, I heard you like this movie. So here you go. And I was like, Oh, this piece of shit. <laughs> and I've watched it. I watched it again a few months later after they gave it to me. And I was like, okay, it does have some good elements. And every time I've watched it since, Mm-hmm. It's 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 kind of an annual Christmas movie because I have a lot of Christmas movies that go back and forth and and I've I really gained an appreciation for it because it's so campy and so dumb, but I like most of the people who are in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrea Martin from the first from the original returns as Mrs. Mack, the house mother, and she's got some good lines, but not particularly written very well. Uh, it was from the guys who made the Final Destination movie. Um, so I uh, can't remember. The the teacher from the original Final Destination shows up and, you know, they do the whole Claire with the bag over her head. But um, the best the best and still scariest thing about the original is when Olivia Hussey goes and she pushes open the door and she finds her friend's dead. And Billy is standing behind the door and you hear him just say, Agnes. Agnes, it's me, Billy. And she looks up and there's his eyeball. And I just got chills even thinking about it. And there's his eye behind the door. And that's one of the most famous images from this movie. And they somehow took that as 
to the 2006 movie as Agnes, who's the killer at the beginning, plucks out everybody's eyeballs and eats them and then hangs them on the Christmas tree. And it's like the eyeball imagery was special. And to be, redu- you know, to be reduced to like, ooh, gory. And my niece actually, wa- I went to bed the other night. My niece watched this on Hulu. And she was like, I don't, I like the original much better. And I said, yeah, yeah. But it does have some campy fun moments in it. So I can't completely write it off. I just can't get over the, I all I can think about is people and us producers in a studio going, what if we tried this and did that? And then it just, to me, it all feels like a money-making scheme. So yeah, I, it, it, I can't stand the idea that somebody watched the original and go, you know what? I can fix that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know how they didn't explain anything i can fix that <laughs> i don't blame anybody involved it's just simply the producers that are trying to make money uh, and it's like that with pretty much every remake very few of them get it right yeah it was it was and it was that period of time this was 2006 and you know like 2003 is when the texas chainsaw massacre came out the remake 2003 or four and actually that was one of the better remakes I loved it at the uh, time. Know, Going back at it again, it feels like a money grabbing, you know, attempt. Yeah, absolute garbage to me. But, <laughs> but you know, like I hated the Friday the Thirteenth remake. I, I just there were so many remakes that were so garbage, and that this one over time, I've kind of gained a little respect for it because I knew what they were trying to do, and I can see where you know studio interference happened. And right. it 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 is of its time. It's very CW kind of or UPN, I guess at that time. I I don't remember, but well, they did you know, a better Katie job. And- they did a better job with the smaller movies. And Black Christmas, you know, is smaller compared to Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween. And yeah, so they did do a better job with those. I mean, I think My Bloody Valentine was actually pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. It's I have a hard time. Again, I have nothing against the filmmakers or actors. It's they did as good as they could. It's just it's hard for me to let go of that. At the same time, I can watch Rob Zombie's Halloween and blame the studio and appreciate what he tried to do, even though he couldn't do what he wanted to. So it, yeah, and I understand why people hate that too. So it it is what it is. But then the other one just doesn't even make sense to this movie. Oh, I think they just borrowed okay. the title, right? Right. Basically. Well, they, yeah, basically the filmmakers were told we're going to remake black Christmas. All you have to do is have it set in a sorority house and the title. And there was one, like one other thing I can't remember at this point. And I consider myself a feminist, but this movie seemed like it was made by an anti-feminist to try to piss off feminists. Hmm. if that makes sense because it was so over the top you know and it was like i one of the here i think it suffers from being called black christmas because you have two movies called black christmas that the first one is a an absolute classic the second one is fun and there doesn't need to be you know there was no reason to remake that movie and I think they did. I think they used that title just for name recognition because there's nothing really in that movie that that is special. So they yeah. had to use the title to get people to drum up yeah. interest. 
See, I feel you like know, it's... Well, go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, Black Christmas is not a supernatural horror movie. Right. This Black Christmas, the 2019 one, was a supernatural horror movie about toxic masculinity and, you know, women rising up and not going to take it anymore. It was a very Me Too movie. And I felt that, like... What, Sean? Allegedly. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I felt like, like I said, it was made by somebody who was like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to fuck with these feminists. We're going to, we're going to make these women seem like they're the, you know, they're the big badasses, but they're just going to look so stupid doing it. That it's, it's gonna it reminds fail. me, it reminds me of the meme. This is the future that liberals want. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it remi- it's That's either that or it's an out of touch liberal trying too hard. You know, it could either way they're trying to market me too versus do something genuine with it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think I've talked about this on the podcast. My brother was, he was trying to make a movie called the newscaster and you know, he didn't get it off the ground, but at some point, uh, Eli Roth's production company came to him with it. Eli Roth had nothing to do with it. He just, it was his, anyway, they read the script and then they were, they wanted him to rewrite it with a me too swing to it, which would have been very it, disingenuous for him because he that, someone who should do that would be a woman not a white male and yeah. but that's what they want all they wanted to do was market it and that's kind of what i felt like that black christmas was was just whether it was somebody well, trying to say fuck you to feminist or somebody that was just so liberal but out of touch and didn't know how to present it either way i, I th- yeah i think i think the latter is true because i think it was um Karen Kusama, I think. I don't remember. I kind of blocked that movie mm-hmm. out of my psyche. Um, <laughs> but I read, I actually was looking forward to seeing it after I read a couple interviews on Twitter or whatever. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what she's trying to do. And I went and I was like, the first half hour, I was really invested with characters, you know. And then it was just like, oh, wait a minute. These are fraternity brothers who are in a cult that are trying, what? And it's like this black ooze. What is this? An X? It could have been an X Files episode, but it was just so ham-handed, and I it was it made me like embarrassed for them. Yeah, I get that. Well, just so, throw it out there. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I no, I was just saying. I it's you know I've got HBO Max, and it's you can watch it on there. And I still I'm like you know what I'm not. This is not what I want to revisit. I was so angry that they called it Black Christmas. Yeah. Well, I'm just throwing it out there. I would be interested. If you ever feel like doing a little extra work, I would love to watch Jeff in front of a dry erase board or a chalkboard doing the history of (laughs) slasher films. Uh, Uh, We can do that. This piece of Black Christmas goes here. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I think it would be fascinating. Uh, Well, you do. I mean, you get pieces of it throughout everything that came after it through Halloween, you know, filtered through Halloween. That's Because everybody's like, oh, you know, Halloween's the original slasher movie. No, it's not. And I, in the last probably 10 years, people have come around to the fact that Black Christmas spawned Halloween, not the other way around. Um, you know, and, you know, how that Halloween spawned all the other holiday horrors. You also have to you take can, into account too, like the the reputation of Bob Clark as well, kind of affects the perception of Black Christmas because he's also the guy who does a Christmas story. He's the guy who does all these other weird movies 40s. that he's done. 
Like he does, he yeah. does. Unlike Carpenter, who who stays in his genre, or Wes Craven, who stays in his genre, and thus you know they're they're venerated for creating horror. Uh, Bob Clark doesn't have that. He doesn't have that reputation, and I think that kind of affects people the way people look at Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. But I think he's probably more yeah. satisfied in his career than like I know John uh, Carpenter is not all that satisfied with. <laughs> John Carpenter has finally given up and just said, you know what? I'm a Halloween guy from now on. I'll just do the movie, the executive producing and do the music <laughs> for it. I'm just, yeah. he, he doesn't hide from that either. It's like, pay me, whatever. <laughs> just give me my money. Yep. Yep. And I, I would love to, I would just like the Renaissance that black Christmas has enjoyed over the last 20 years. I mean, the movie's almost 50 years old and about, I remember seeing it, on HBO and it was called stranger in the house. And I was a little kid and I was just fascinated with horror movies as a kid. And then a few years later, I, I was with my, my cousin and her boyfriend and we were at blockbuster or one of the local video places. And I saw the cover with Claire with the bag over her head and just tripped a memory. And I was like, Oh my God, can we get this movie? And we got it. And I ended up like buying it for 70 bucks at or 60 bucks at, Suncoast one Christmas. Uh, I taped it. I taped the like the last half of it on USA Network when it was um, still called Stranger in the House. And it was just, it was that mythical movie for me that like kind of, even before I saw Friday the 13th or Halloween, it really just has always been my favorite horror movie. And in the last 15 years, it's really just become my favorite movie. And I only do watch it at Christmas because I don't want it. I don't want to ruin it for me. I don't want, I don't want to like, every time I see that eye behind the door, I don't want to lose that chill that goes up my spine to this day. Cause I just, that was, that's like absolutely one of the scariest things that you could ever experience in my opinion. Like that's, that's why the strangers, you know, that movie, it, because there's just no real rhyme or reason and they're just there and they're just on the other side of the door. And you just see that eyeball, and it's like, shit. Yeah. So that's why I only watch it a couple times a year, and always on Christmas Eve. So. Did you watch it for this show, or you waited for Christmas Eve? <laughs> oh no, no, I, I, I have I usually watch it on I watch it Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, and then like New Year's night, and then I put it away. Um, I really I I didn't watch it up until Friday when my niece was here and she's like, let's watch black Christmas. And I had just gotten the new scream factory, uh, 4k Blu-ray combo. And I, I was like, yeah, that seems like a pretty good night to do it. So we watched it and I will still again, watch it on Christmas Eve, but I, I only allow myself between Thanksgiving and new year's day to watch it because I just don't want that special feeling. I did watch it when Margot Kidder died. That was my, you know, instead of the Amityville Horror movie, the Amityville Horror or Superman, that was my movie because I really is her best performance. Absolutely. Unquestionable. Um, I, I'm the same way about, I'm not mocking you, I'm the same way about Texas Chainsaw Massacre one time per year. One time yeah. per year because I don't want to ruin it because I love it so much. Yeah. Anyway, it's always fun to bring this one back. I think this is the fourth time, and it's been a fun conversation every single time we've done it. Uh, I'm sure we'll do it again. 
Uh, let's see here. What else do we got on the show? 1992, Used People, Leap of Faith, and Toys. Anything memorable about those movies? Um, t- Toys is a weird movie. Like Barry Levinson directed, uh, Robin Williams starring, and it's about a weirdo who owns a toy factory. And it goes to very, very unusual places. It doesn't quite accomplish its ambition, but it is so weirdly ambitious that I kind of admire it at times because it is so very weird. It is so like a movie that shouldn't have been made in so many ways because it's such a bizarre idea and everything in it is just so completely bizarre. Like it's it, it's a movie that feels like it comes directly out of the brain of Robin Williams unfiltered. And that's kind of exciting. But I wish that somebody had actually put a little filter on it and just kind of rated it in just in the right direction. A little bit of a Barry Levinson was the wrong director for this idea. He's too much of a he's too much of a mainstream guy who I think was trying to be an artist. And I think that I think he came up very short uh, on that. Uh, uh, but Robin Williams at times in that movie is completely inspired. Just, just some of the stuff he says in Toys is actually rather brilliant because it's 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 robin williams it's pure distilled robin williams madness and that that gets kind of fun also ll cool j just goes to some very weird places for no particularly good reason uh the villain is pretty spectacular too it's just a shame that the movie is just it comes up so very short at times so if they could have reined him in like they reigned steve martin in the leap of faith it would have been (laughs) a great movie Leap of Faith, another one. It's an interesting performance by Steve Martin. He's definitely trying something, but he just doesn't quite get there. What would you think if Toys had been directed by, like, Terrence Malick? (laughs) Again, I don't think he's the right director for this either, but (laughs) there's certainly a right director out there. I'm just not thinking of who it is right now. David Lynch. I I actually went to see Toys in the theater because of the Tori Amos soundtrack. Uh, you know, I was kind of obsessed with you know like all the songs that were on it, and just yeah, I, I just don't I don't remember particularly loving it, mm-hmm. but I remember him. You know that it was just him. Like most of his movies around that time, it was just. It was more about him than about the plot. Yeah. All right. Next week, uh, we got Babylon, The Whale, Puss in Boots, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, and then Glass Onion. We'll talk about that again when it comes to Netflix. Uh, our classic is Terror Train. And in 1992, yes. Chaplin, Hoffa, and... Scent of a Woman, the movie that ruined ruined (laughs) Al Pacino. (laughs) Uh, I've been wanting to see Chaplin for a long time. It's been been years since I've seen Chaplin, so I kind of want to see that one. Yeah, me too. We've kind of flirted with it as a classic for years and never actually bit the bullet, so it'll be a good chance to finally watch it. Hoffa I never want to see again. (laughs) Hoffa feels like five hours to me. It feels longer than The Irishman. Yeah. And I don't want to watch Send of a Woman. Uh, we are running long, but we'll do it like five or six quick flick charts if you guys are okay with that. So, I think we should do, we should put Black Christmas up right, against. Let's do that. How do you do that again? <laughs> let's get, let's rank, let's get that up there. The search.
Oh, just put Black Christmas in. <laughs> we'll see if it'll it'll give us the option. Yeah, there, yeah, there you go. All right, re-rank is what you want to do. All right, let's run this through till the end. All right, Black Christmas, Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 4. Black Christmas. Black Christmas. Black Christmas, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> uh, it should Mr. technically Smith. be It's a Wonderful Life, but Black Christmas. Mr. Smith goes to, goes to Washington for me. I mean, recency bias. I haven't seen Mr. <laughs> Smith in a while. Black Christmas, get out. Get out. Black Christmas. I'm. I. I it's my favorite movie, so I'm just going to put that out there that I'm going to probably pick that. I like Get Out, but I kind of think I've been quiet about it, but I kind of think it's a little overrated personally. Uh, Black Christmas or Princess Bride? Princess Bride. Black Christmas. <laughs> Although Carrie Elwes was in the 2019 Black Christmas. I'm not a huge Princess Bride fan. Okay. <laughs> Black Christmas, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I'm going to switch back and go back to Black Christmas here because I, I've kind of fallen out of love with Crouching Tiger. Yeah. Feels like homework if I had to watch it again. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Black Christmas or Fargo? Fargo. Black Christmas. Yeah, I, I I love Fargo. Black Christmas, I love you, man. Absolutely, Black Christmas. Yeah, Black Christmas is a better movie, but I I mean I enjoy I love you, man more. Black Christmas, kick ass. Black Christmas. Yep. Yeah, it's easy. Black Christmas, Three Kings. Three Kings. I love Three Kings, but still, it's Black Christmas. I'll go with Three Kings on this one. Black Christmas, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Black Christmas, Deadpool. Black Christmas. Black Christmas. We moved up to 49 between yes. Pulp Fiction and Deadpool, which is the head of the big <laughs> you Lebowski. You probably need to re-rank Pulp Fiction. How did that happen? What is well, that doing? Go down that four. One, yeah. Go down That's four. That's all weird. The big Lebowski's behind Deadpool. That's weird. <laughs> LA Confidential's a pile. We've got some work to do on this. Yeah. Josh Adams, I'm going to blame him for all of this. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say, because it's kind of niche, I'm, but I'm, I'm very happy that Black Christmas is in the top 50. I think it's a reasonable spot. Yeah, considering the, the diversity on the podcast, or not diversity, because we're all white guys, but, you know, the different opinions that we all have mm-hmm. all right anyway that was a fun show I'll talk to you guys next time cool thank have you a good, one. Night. good night